attorney may be used against you. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, an attorney will be appointed to defend you at the state's expense. Do you understand these rights as I have read them to you? You hurting me, Wayne repeated. What did I do to you? Robidoux pulled him to a sitting position, let him sag against the wall. Wayne Harper was a big, soft man, his cheeks sprouting the tawny stubble of early morning, his close-cropped hair thinning on top. His face was empty of expression, his eyes a pale, vacant blue. Robidoux felt a familiar disappointment. Eighteen years he'd been on the force, working his way up, making his share of arrests, tracking down the predators. Just once he'd have liked to have them spit at him in defiance, cry out that they would never be taken alive, or at least resist. Many times at the end of an investigation, steeped in the crime, he'd hoped for a little resistance at the caller. But no. The drunks on the street resisted, unable to calculate consequences, but the ones he came for with a warrant had time to think it through, to act innocent and surprised. Too many cop shows. Do you understand these rights as I have read them to you? Robidoux repeated. Campbell stepped into the room, holstering his pistol. That him, Ray? Seems so. Ugly son of a bitch, ain't he? He asked for a lawyer? Ray shook his head. On the bed, Wayne Harper frowned, his lips moving. He looked toward the two officers. A what? He said. Mayfield, Texas, 5.30 a.m. Jeanette Guzman was getting blisters. The work boots she was wearing had been on sale, but they weren't quite the right size, and they were men's, and they pinched her feet in some places and let them slide in others as she patrolled the perimeter of the Hubble factory. She hadn't wanted to be a fence-walker in the first place. It was lonely work with bad hours and occasional danger. But there weren't a lot of opportunities for a girl with a GED and no job training. There were tech dollars in Austin. There was oil cash in Midland. But none of that was coming her way, at least not yet. Things might be different with a junior college degree or vocational schooling, but that took money and money in Mayfield was mostly locked into the operations of Hubble Chemical, which was why she was pacing the grounds of the main factory with a burning sensation growing on the outside of her right heel. The factory was a gray concrete block, featureless but for infrequent windows. It was the tallest structure in Mayfield, save the water tower, but wide enough to look squat. In the daylight, it seemed to have dropped from the sky flattening on impact. Now it was just a dark bulk looming in Jeanette's peripheral vision. Her flashlight's beam played across the fence, up to the razor wire, down to the hard-baked dust. Some feet beyond, an incurious armadillo trundled by. She took a deep breath of the cold night air, looking up to the vastness of the spangled sky, then raised the radio to her lips. West four, she said. All clear. Then she bent down to pull on her sock, and that was how she missed the first shy flame showing through the factory windows. She saw what followed, though. With a deep roar, a blast swelled up through the building. The windows burst in a glistening rain of glass, and thick black smoke followed. For a few moments, Jeanette watched, stunned, as backlit figures struggled from the plant, 
turned strange pirouettes, dropped to the ground. Marty, she said into the radio, something's happened. There's been an explosion. There's a fire. The reply crackled back. What? Say again? You'd better send someone. There's a big fire. There are people running out of the plant. She paused, watching the figures against the glow. Another explosion shook the building. They're dancing. I don't know. They're falling down. They're sort of twitching. She stumbled and realized that she had backed up into the fence, its chain links pressing against her body. The firelight dimmed, obscured by smoke, then reasserted itself. She turned and through the fence saw jackrabbits bounding away, the armadillo lumbering awkwardly, its scales a fading gleam. A thought flashed irrelevantly through her mind, a rhyme learned from a library book. Something wicked this way comes. Marty! The gate's locked. What? Jeanette tugged the handle. The gate's locked. I can't get out. The radio made no reply, and she let it fall to the ground, taking hold of the fence, pulling herself up. Her boots scraped uselessly against the metal too large to find a foothold, and she gave a high cry of frustration as she dropped like a supplicant to her knees, fingers meshed with the unyielding wire. She caught her breath and looked back at the factory, watching the roiling smoke black against the fire, blacker than the black sky. A chemical scent laced the air now, stinging her eyes, burning her throat. She fumbled for the radio. Marty! The smoke is poisonous! I can't tell! Oh, God, I don't know! Tell! In a room across town, Martin Jessup laid the silent radio on his desk and looked at it. Out the window he could see a garish glow, a lewd carnival light growing in the sky. He dialed a number on his phone, and two hundred miles away Roger Allen woke from dreamless sleep. Jessup here, there's a problem at the plant, Martin said. What kind of problem? Worth waking me up for? It sounds that way, sir. Martin felt oddly calm. Jeanette was dead. He was pretty sure of that, and a lot of other people, most likely. But he was responding appropriately. He was doing what he was supposed to, and if everyone simply performed their designated tasks, what was there that the system couldn't handle? There's a fire and some sort of toxic smoke. There was a moment of silence on the line. I see, said Roger Allen. What should I do? Martin asked. Should I call disaster response? The state people? No, no, said Roger. Call Morgan Siler. Martin said nothing. If he waited just one more moment, he thought, he might understand. And the local council, Roger continued. Wayland Hart. There are guys on the ground and the in-house people. Martin could contain himself no longer. Who? He asked. I'm sorry, but aren't those... Yes, Roger said. There are lawyers. And that's who you call. Get on it now. That's the first thing you do. You call all the lawyers. Martin Jessup hung up the phone. He had his orders now, but they still didn't make any sense. As he picked up the receiver and began to dial again, he could feel the first sting 
of tears. Chapter 1 Time and Motion Studies September 18, 2000 Washington, 7 a.m. Every weekday morning at 7 o'clock, a powerful black car made its way through the Georgetown traffic to a red brick house. For 15 minutes, it waited outside the door for the occupant of the house to emerge. Peter Morgan kept it waiting because he could, and he wanted the driver to know that. He did it for precisely 15 minutes every day because, in addition, he wanted the driver to know that he knew. Peter Morgan's mornings did not dare to vary from his routine. The soft glow of a progressively luminous alarm clock cajoled him from slumber. The aroma of coffee brewed by an automatic espresso machine drew him from between the smooth white sheets of his bed. With a fond glance at his sleeping wife's soft swell, he alit and padded to the scalding benison of a high-pressure shower. Beneath its steaming pulse he shaved with a wet-dry electric razor before stepping forth into a plush cotton robe. A fog-free mirror held his image while he applied costly unguents to his body, his face, his head. He dressed inside a closet. Fifteen suits were arrayed on the cedar rails, a crisp army of shirts, a bright artillery of ties, and below, a battalion of shoes like dragon's teeth. Breakfast, a sop to the doctors, was half a grapefruit and two crusts of penitence toast, the espresso like a song in his blood. This morning, diverging from the pattern, he was out the door precisely at seven. Today he felt too eager to take any pleasure in making others wait for him.